from the National Race and Capitalism Project, welcome to New Dawn, the podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. Brandy Thompson Summers is an assistant professor of geography and global metropolitan studies at the University of California, Berkeley. She received her PhD in sociology from UC Santa Cruz. Her research engages theoretical themes that cut across multiple domains of social life. Summers builds epistemological and methodological insights from cultural and urban geography, urban sociology, African-American studies, and media studies by examining the cultural, political, and economic dynamics by which race and space are reimagined and reordered. Her first book, Black in Place, The Spatial Aesthetics of Race in a Post-Chocolate City, explores how aesthetics and race converge to locate or map blackness in Washington, D.C. Summers has published several articles and essays in both academic and popular publications, including the International Journal of Urban and Regional Research, The New York Times, Boston Globe, and The Funambulist. So welcome. It's a, I know we we're supposed to have this conversation a lot earlier, but life and massive crisis intervene. I think, you know, at personal level, family level, community level, of course, nationally and globally. Right, right. I'm still happy to be here. So I appreciate the rescheduling. Your book came out last year and focuses on um, Black in Place, Spatial Aesthetics of Race in a Post-Chocolate City. It came out in 2019 from the University of North Carolina Press. Your book came out last year and focused on the processes of racialization, gentrification, racial capitalism, the context of black urban spaces. And your work is even more important today in the current climate that we just alluded to, given the ravages that black and brown urban spaces have been subject to, to COVID-19's heightening of existing racial and economic inequalities globally, as well as domestically, as well as a rising white supremacist backlash in the face of renewed movement for black liberation and racial justice. Your work discusses a time where the term chocolate city denoted a sense of black urban spaces, marked by political and cultural innovation, artistic endeavors, a spirit of self-determination and forging of various black identities. But in the title, you, you talk about a post-chocolate city. What do you mean by that? And what processes contributed to that post part of the chocolate city? You know, thank you again, Michael. And I, I think the, yes, my book came out a year ago, you know, it, it, was a process that took several years. It was several years in the making, and I had to make a lot of changes and choices as to how I was going to describe Washington, D.C., especially, you know, thinking about the verbiage of a, of a post-chocolate city rather than some of the other names that have been used, like latte or cappuccino or other coffee uh, metaphors to describe the area. So really the focus of the book and how I got to the post-chocolate, I'm really trying to contextualize how like the everyday aesthetics of blackness and black life highlight this usage of symbols that that invoke race belonging and space in this historical moment and that include now partially where diversity is used as this tool for commercial redevelopment also architectural design planning and, and marketing so so I'm explaining the shift so it's, it's this historical movement from the chocolate city to a more cosmopolitan post chocolate metropolis 
And so in thinking about that, you know, the, I'm, I'm thinking about how racism shapes Black life and really how these liberal ideas of race neutrality and calls for diversity only really serve to marginalize and displace Black people. And so how I do that is, is I'm thinking about it in terms of what I'm calling Black aesthetic emplacement, which contributes to the post-chocolate city. And ultimately, it's this it's about the affective and experiential processes that are mostly contingent upon material and, and social context. So in thinking about the post-chocolate city, it's one that really relies on these market-constructed signifiers of Blackness to, to promote both a, a multiracial and a post-racial aesthetic that incorporates notions of Black symbolism, but specifically not, not Black people. One of the early stark examples, you talk about this brewery that's owned by a couple of white guys mm-hmm. called Chocolate City. Mm-hmm. So could you say a bit more about cultural appreciation and as you, I think as you put it, the use of diversity as a tool of exclusion, not inclusion? Sure. So, I mean, I, I think the concept of cultural appreciation has become incredibly fraught when you have businesses. And and in this case, the Chocolate City Brewery, it's no longer in business, but it was started by two white men and then two black men were brought in to do more administrative and, and fundraising components of the business. And so to use imagery to denote blackness, but still in their case, they denied that it was necessarily about blackness and more so about DC being you know, this city, this town, a a city of neighborhoods rather than it being the federal city. And so while they used, you know, the chocolate city name, used imagery of a fist, even though it was red, it wasn't black, they were still drawing on a particular recognizable history and imagery that's more familiar when you think about this black city. And so it's more so, uh, you know, as it relates to multiple businesses like this, especially along the H Street Northeast Corridor that I was looking at, there's a way that, you know, Chocolate City Brewery and others are these elite stakeholders that are really reducing Black people to bodies and really kind of using the tools of capitalism and specifically neoliberal capitalism to more so constrain and restrict and contain Blackness and Black people to specific areas from which they are extracting their labor and capital. And so with the brewery, it's, you know, to, to understand it as, as, as appreciation would be a stretch, especially since they're denying a specific attachment to Blackness. But beyond that, again, to profit off of this very popular imagery, to name one of the beers after former mayor, Marion Barry, where it was a Marion Barry beer, which was a play on not only Marion Berry's name, but also Marion Berry's, the actual fruit. So again, it's more so this way that they're able to extract value from the Blackness rather than actually thinking about how to improve the lives of Black people. I guess I'm maybe I'm just older and more cynical uh, than you are. (laughs) (laughs) And that's pain me to think that there might be people in the audience young enough not to know that Chocolate City was an extraordinarily important pop reference in Black culture uh, through to George Clinton, Parliament mm-hmm. Funkadelic. Mm-hmm. But, one, but because of the, you know, the imagery of, of Clinton, of George Clinton, and Chalker City, it seems a little disingenuous to claim it's not tied to Blackness, particularly the use of Fist and the name Marion Barry, all of which have been 
associated with various aspects of black mm -hmm. power, if not mm -hmm. necessarily the most militant ones. That's right. I mean, that's absolutely right. And so I think that there's this attempt at plausible deniability in terms of evoking race with an attempt to not be racist. And so there's a fear that if you say that you are you know, drawing on Black culture, but you're not Black, then you're automatically racist. And so the best way to do that is to deny. And so in the case of the Chocolate City Brewery's fist, the symbol, again, it was red. And so they explicitly decided not to have it be Black. Now, that also could be, it also was referencing the Stars and Bars flag of Washington, D.C., which is red. And so there are these ways that the aesthetics of the image itself allowed them to kind of exist in this space where they could say this is more about, again, this city of neighborhoods in ways that, sure, Black people contributed to the city in these important ways, but we're not necessarily commodifying or using Blackness in order to sell the beer. We're more so, again, thinking about inclusion and the diversity of the neighborhood. And that's what I found to be so important and resonant now is that you know, you can draw on Black culture, draw on Black people, or at least understanding of Blackness and just say that you're, you're contributing to a diverse fabric and everyone loves diversity. So what's wrong with doing that? I think that's kind of the attitude behind it. We, we both lived, have lived, uh, or at least we both know Oakland, at some point, Oakland, California very well. And I haven't been back in several years, but the Oakland you described, which is similar to the processes that's happened to Black communities, as you point out, in D.C., of course, which is the focal point of the book, but also neighborhoods in Chicago and many other places, it's happening in Harlem as well. The Oakland you described would be unrecognizable to me. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about the processes of gentrification and displacement, and to what degree that linked, I think it's very clearly linked in Chicago to the what you call the suburbanization of Black poverty? Sure. You know, the way I've I've talked about what's happened in D.C., and, and more so, again, this, this emphasis on development projects, larger-scale larger development projects, privatizing public space, thinking about, you know, opportunities for public-private partnerships and, and ways that community organizations and, and various forms of community institutions have been replaced thereby reducing not only the need for Black folks to be in the city, but also the ability. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to focus on commercial real estate or thinking about a commercial corridor as opposed to a residential, have this book focus on the residential elements, is because I think too often when we think about cities and belonging, that our public spaces, and again, like commercial retail spaces, areas that provide services end up being really, really important. And so being able to shop somewhere enables you to actually still have a connection to a place, even if you don't live there anymore. So in DC, certainly once Black folks were able to move to the outer lying suburbs, there was this shift this movement, people wanted more land. They wanted to be able to buy a home. But at the same time, you still saw that DC was a place that Black folks could still hang. And so you see this shift, not only in terms of policies that are making it easier for developers to come in and, and, and literally raise entire neighborhoods and, and create new structures and shift the architectural aesthetics, but also in these spaces make it so that folks don't feel comfortable hanging out anymore. And so in in Oakland and in the Bay Area, 
I grew, I was born and raised here. I left when I, you know, when I went to college and came back for a brief stint. But even in that time, like, you know, essentially I've been gone 12, 15 years. It, well, no more than that. It has shifted in a way that, like you said, it's unrecognizable and you haven't been here in a long time. So I can't <laughs> imagine what you'd see. But there's a way that, of course, you know, the Great Recession certainly impacted the cultural and racial geography of the city and kind of, again, the outer areas because, you know, people's homes were foreclosed on. I mean, there were huge hits that were taken in Oakland and other areas, specifically with Black, Latinx and Indigenous populations. And so not only are you seeing ways that Black people can't afford to live in Oakland anymore, and I'll be honest, like none of my family we all lived in Oakland. No one lives in Oakland anymore. No one could afford it any longer. So they moved further out to Antioch, Pittsburgh, Hayward, you know, just beyond, right? The city yeah. limits. Yeah. And so there's a way that not only we couldn't live there anymore, but even coming back, you start to see new bike lanes that are erected where an entire city, like on Telegraph, where half of the road is devoted to bike lanes or where you have, you know, these small gestures and kind of this urban guerrilla urbanism where folks are taking over and creating art spaces where it might have been, you know, an old stomping ground for, you know, middle-aged black folks to hang out. So you're seeing that there, Oakland in particular, and I think the Bay area has this reputation of being progressive and it's a place where you go. I mean, it has the legacy of the black Panther party. You have, you know, this long, this legacy also of black labor unions and, and, and involvement of black people in terms of thinking about working class politics. But as it relates to how people are actually existing here, the numbers have, have dropped significantly. We're down to below 24% in Oakland when, you know, we reached a height. I mean, there's a there's an argument as to whether we got to 51% or we stayed at 49, but there's just been a drastic shift in, in the number of Black people who live here. And so you start to see that shift happening before I saw it in D.C. or before I was able to document in D.C. And it looks different because of the ways that the Bay Area has held on to this progressive narrative as if it supports Black lives and Black living when in, in so many ways it doesn't. I know exactly what you mean. At one point, my entire family lived in Oakland, and we were, we were not living in, well, my mother always lived in a middle-class neighborhood, but me and my brother were, my brother was in West Berkeley, and I was in East Oakland, which were which were working-class neighborhoods, one a Black working-class neighborhood and one a predominantly Latinx slash Black working-class neighborhood. And those don't exist anymore. And it's the pro I saw the process begin in San Francisco, when I was in college and with the destruction of Black and Japanese American neighborhoods and eventually Latinx neighborhoods. And then it just, you know, went down the peninsula and eventually across the Bay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you certainly saw it in, in, in San Francisco. And, and also my family, when they migrated from Louisiana, they came straight to San Francisco and just kind of learning about their movement, you know, from Bayview Hunters Point, you know, thinking about um, Fillmore area as well but how they were essentially blockbusters in their neighborhood, which was really close to Daly City. So it was really on the fringes of San Francisco. But to see the ways that that city has changed dramatically. And San Francisco is so tiny, if you think about it in terms of square footage. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was a way that Black people were certainly contained in those two, maybe three specific neighborhoods. Whereas in Oakland, 
you know, as I talked to my mom about it, you know, her growing up in San Francisco, she said it was like Oakland was a black city. Like it had a completely different vibe. You know, there were ways that you could hang out and you could kind of be there where you couldn't necessarily in San Francisco. So to lose that, that feeling, the affect of Oakland being that, and it being replaced instead with, again, like art or, you know, an emphasis on cultural production to replace the people and the feeling that had been there for so many years before. It's it's alarming. One of the, I think, same outcome, slightly different process in Chicago with the suburbanization of Black poverty is you have rich, not rich, you have affluent and really poor black suburbs. So the really the more affluent black suburbs are the process we've seen in DC and elsewhere of black folks moving out to the suburbs trying to get better school systems, access to better school systems, etc. But a suburb but a suburbanization of black poverty in Chicago was a result of a public private partnership on one hand, the state tearing down massive amounts of public housing, then re- developers taking over that land and building, you know, upper income housing and retail districts on top of it. One of the, I think, perhaps different aspects to D.C.'s gentrification process, which you said, quote, as being perhaps the most intense in the United States, is that Blackness has been memorialized. What did you mean by that? There's a way that I think Blackness, so so right, if we think about Washington, D.C., and how it's situated between Maryland and Virginia, how it's surrounded by Maryland and Virginia. And there are ways that, you know, there's that generation that, like I said, was that grew up around Reagan's administration that were able to move out to Prince George's County mostly. And so that's when you saw this way that, you know, cultural production, like go-go music, right? Like there was a particular affective, sonic, this aesthetic connection to Blackness in D.C. that remained, even though people were really crossing state lines. And so there's this way that Blackness was still recognized as a sanctuary in a lot of ways. It was people could really revel in kind of the celebration of Black political power that was existing in D.C. Um, You saw Black businesses that were still doing well. Again, as I mentioned with Marion Barry, um, as I said in the book, where he really focused on getting Black folks uh, contracts with the city. Black people started to get more federal contracts. And so you're starting to see this expansion of a Black middle class that really came to power around Barry's time and, and a little bit beyond. And so what I wanted to make clear with the book, and, and this is something that I think really remains important today, and you know what we're going through, you know this this dumpster fire of a year that we're having, it's important to understand how there's a disarticulation between Black people and Blackness. And so where Black people might, you know, there's an everyday way that people, Black people are trying to survive, live, feed their families, you know, go to work, et cetera, entertain, be entertained, go out if possible. At the same time, Blackness, in terms of this kind of nostalgic idea that it's able to circulate and ultimately be commodified, is something that ends up being extracted, taken away. So in that way, it, it's not only kind of memorialized, but also muralized in how businesses, the state, individual actors and elite actors in particular are able to use it at will, decide when Blackness ends up being a positive element to add to the built environment, 
or when Blackness detracts or at least devalues a particular space or, or institution. And so I tried to provide examples in the book where not only was Blackness celebrated in that kind of muralized way, but also where, you know, the Blackness of, let's say, a barbershop or a beauty shop was deemed too much. There's an excessiveness to having too much Blackness in a particular area. And so the, it's that disarticulation that I think is really important to kind of think about as we're trying to understand how Blackness is all, you know, in so many ways in vogue, but Black people are not. <clears throat> That's again, like you say, it's a process we see a lot of places around the University of Chicago. There were some, there were Black neighborhoods and there were some, a lot, number of Black businesses, particularly to the east of the railroad tracks. For example, there's a barbershop that all of us went to. And there's a couple of them, um, beauty salons as well. And most of the property was owned by the University of Chicago. They, they raised those blocks <laughs> where Black people hung out in clubs and uh, got their hair done or got their, or saw their barbers. And it's just sat there for, for a couple of years. The main thing was to get rid of the Black presence and then do the commercial redevelopment. One of the key concepts you deal with is the role of neoliberalism in transforming chocolate cities into post-chocolate cities. And one of the points you make is that neoliberalism is responsible in some ways for hiding the sources of inequality. What did you mean by that? So, you know, I, I, one of the main points I wanted to make in the book about neoliberalism is that it's both an economic ideology that's using this, you know, market logic as a way to, to protect and to promote social equality and also individual liberties. That's what it really focuses on. But I also wanted to focus on the ways that it ends up being really productive in a way to kind of make worlds and, and develop landscapes. And so, how it's able to be really sneaky is by convincing people that, you know, what's most important is to be successful or to be have a business that is profitable above all. And so what that might mean is that, you know, you can create conditions that aren't necessarily great for your fellow neighbors, or specifically as it relates to what I kind of identify as these perfect neoliberal subjects who are Black, there's this emphasis on, again, folding Blackness into this diversity fabric in order to accrue more wealth for an individual. But neoliberalism kind of helps that along without realizing that you're creating detrimental conditions for, again, your neighbors, the people that you are trying to attract. And so there are a few characters in the book who have all the good intentions in the world, who are Black, grew up in the neighborhood, and really wanted to see the neighborhood thrive like it used to prior to the uprisings in 68. But what ends up happening is they're trying to teach Black people how to essentially, specifically Black entrepreneurs and business owners, how to create businesses that are more appealing to a wider cross-section of people, i.e. wealthier white people. And in that way, it takes away from the crux of the business itself, where we would see that there are businesses that try to transform not only you know, the, the services that they provide or the products that they provide, but also kind of like, again, the, the aesthetic kind of components of what puts the business together. And after a while, the fad goes out and the business closes down. And so what ends up happening is it just means that, you know, in this particular market, they couldn't compete rather than it being an overall, a structural and this very much institutional logic and ideology that doesn't support, again, this more community-based approach to 
helping the neighborhood or at least providing services to the neighborhood. So neoliberalism creates this this idea that the individual should continue to thrive. And in that way, you can help your people. But it doesn't work. It doesn't match up. And we see this in how a lot of the businesses ended up failing. One of the other aspects of the reality of Black urban spaces is the question of surveillance and policing. And this will help us transition to talking about our current situation. You say that Black communities are continuing under surveillance. Could you expand on that a bit? Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and that exists, you know, in, in, in ways outside of, of D.C., of course. And, and I'm thinking about that in terms of the work that I'm trying to do in Oakland. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, one of the elements that kind of makes this, this post-Chocolate City in the context of D.C. is, again, ways that elites or the state are reducing Black people to bodies, which are easier to constrain and and surveil if you restrict them and and contain them in specific locations. It also makes it easier to extract, again, labor and capital. And so you're seeing this in the form of, you know, various forms of surveillance technology, like like Nextdoor or, you know, those um, platform, the apps that um, allow folks to essentially be uh, citizen, you know, police officers and, and call out folks and, and participate in a form of surveillance and, and of their fellow residents and, and, and citizens. And so it's enabling them to decide who belongs and who doesn't. So it's not just law enforcement that's enacting these forms of surveillance, but it's also empowering individuals to do the same thing in a lot of ways to protect property above all, not necessarily to make people safer, but to make them feel more comfortable. And so as it relates, you know, to the changing, like, again, as I think about Oakland and other locations, it relates to how, let's say, central business districts or, you know, those areas that have bids, have uh, business improvement districts, they're able to collect money to hire private security, or to, you know, find ways to clean up the street. And often what clean up means is keeping certain folks, whether that be poor, black, brown, indigenous, students, the unhoused off the street in order for it to be uh, a desirable space for consumers to come and shop. So surveillance takes multiple forms. We see how, you know, this is such a technology mediated society now where people are taking part in their own, you know, the video camera, people are using their phones to capture what's going on without context. So we're being, especially with Black communities, and you also, I mean, the never ending, you know, those, the boxes that have the camera that are put up by um, law enforcement that, again, watch neighborhoods that are supposed to keep, quote unquote, neighborhoods safe. But in reality, they're just watching the activities that are happening in mostly working class and poor Black neighborhoods. I think what the general public that uses euphemism sometimes doesn't understand is how violence is so intimately connected to these uh, processes of policing. And it is a combination of not just a state, but also white civil society. Um, you know, obviously, one of the more tragic, re- relatively recent events was Trayvon Martin. But just in the last couple of days, a black teenager in in Michigan had his jaw broken mm, by a guy, guy. Yeah, by 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 somebody at a state park who's saying black lives don't matter and black people don't belong on this beach. It's the 21st century, and these are the type of stories that I heard about growing up um, as black people moved into the north. 
Mm -hmm. And and it's certainly the case, you know, of course, we've talked about, I mean, you've seen this a lot in the media, where people are being more emboldened, where they don't have to hide it anymore. There's a lack of, you know, desire to be politically correct. Mm -hmm. And it seems as though, you know, we're at a turning point potentially to where there has to be some wide scale changes, there has to be really like, a full-scale revolution in order to get people to actually listen and pay attention to what's been bubbling beneath the surface. And so, you know, I've, I've talked to my students and others about the fact that we have been in crisis for so long. And so it's just been intensified most recently. And so if you think about, you know, cities in particular, and of course, you know, my work really focuses on urban environments, there's this combo of, you know, urban restructuring, various forms of racialized disinvestment, you know, as I talk about technology and and financialization booms, especially like in the Bay Area. And again, this impact of the Great Recession that has diff- that has people living differently if they're living in the city at all. And so you have cities really investing in this kind of effort to sanitize public spaces and allow activities like this where you can make the claim that a Black person doesn't belong in a place that's essentially been sanitized or a place, you know, that used to hold this long sen- this long-held sense of place for Black folks now recalibrates this idea of what urban means, right? It's upgraded, it's cosmopolitan, and it's cool. And therefore, Black folks don't belong in that space anymore. And it, it, again, emboldens folks to enact various instances of violence like, on Black bodies. So I don't know that I don't see it getting better before it gets worse until there's a a market shift and and our understanding of, of, you know, again, belonging. And then also the history kind of, we have to historicize the problems and recognize that we've been in crisis for a long time. Well, that historicizing of the problem is, is, is also obviously under vicious attack by the president and others that, I mean, 80% of the work I do, certainly the work you do is critical race theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whether it's um, anti-racist training, critical race theory, black studies, right. all of uh, racial and ethnic studies are all under extraordinary attack, not just at the federal level, but in school districts and right. community colleges from Arizona to Washington, D.C. Right, right. And, you know, I, I think, you know, That's actually part of the issue is that when we take, this is what I talk about also, if we focus so much on individual racist acts and individual racists, rather than understanding racism as being so structurally embedded and and understanding this longer history as it relates to racism and capitalism. I mean, you saw with the White House having attacks against even the term racial capitalism and critical race theory, right? There's a way that those who are in power and want to maintain a certain level of power want to do that by separating us from this opportunity to learn more about kind of what the United States is built on and how we kind of move forward without addressing these problems, how it can get that much worse. So it's, you know, I think with COVID and the fact that, you know, some of us are still trying to shelter in place, there is an opportunity for us to really reflect, but I'm not sure that that's happening because folks are feeling stir crazy. And like, you know, the people who are used to being able to move around and be mobile and free aren't. And so the way to kind of take that out is to essentially, you know, punish those who 
are essential, those who do have to put their lives on the line, those who don't have the same privileges and have to be out there endangering their lives rather than being at home. So we're, we're, I think we're in for a ride for sure. Right. And one of the concepts or terms that they really don't want to hear anything about and want to, to, to censor is, a, is the term white privilege. That exactly. Is one, exactly. <laughs> and we can't talk about the history of this country or present inequality without talking about white privilege. Oh, like we, we can't talk about the status of women without talking about male privilege. Mm-hmm. Just not be able to change anything without having those discussions. Mm-hmm. One of the, you know, as an urbanist, COVID-19 is clearly exacerbating all sorts of inequalities. Could you say maybe a bit about how Black communities are being affected, both in terms of education and health? and the structure of inequality that we have in this country? Sure. I I mean, I think, and and I'm hopeful that, you know, at this point we are aware of the ways that COVID is devastating Black communities. And we saw, you know, early on months ago, where we still are seeing this overrepresentation of Black people among the dead in major cities. And so, you know, again, months ago, we were talking about Detroit, Chicago, D.C., and other areas. And so you saw not only these racial disparities in testing, but also that was happening as it related to treatment. And so I'm sure, Michael, you read about like, you know, those hospitals that were turning Black people away, some of those who died as a result. And now we're seeing ways that where Black and Brown people are disproportionately impacted by COVID, they're being asked to essentially be test cases for the vaccine, right? And so they want to use Black bodies. I mean, it's, it's reminiscent, of course, of various experiments, like thinking about Tuskegee and, and a variety of other traumatizing experiences that Black people have endured. But, you know, we're seeing it in terms of, you know, not only the health risks, but again, with education, with students um, having to go online it also just presumes that one, children have access to technology that enables them to get on a computer, a laptop, or a, a tablet, or that their parents don't work and can monitor their progress while they are online. And so we're seeing, of course, you know, wealthier people or people of means having the ability to create separate pods, which I, I'll admit I have my daughter in a pod. And also folks are hiring private tutors for groups of wealthier students. And so I think the impact of what COVID is doing, not only, again, in terms of health, but also various social inequalities, we're going to see that for for years to come. And that's not to say we even know what happens to children and and their parents once they've had um, the virus we don't know what impact it's going to have on them later on. So they may, we're going to have to potentially think about more intensely about our healthcare system and the ways that it might not actually support the folks who have survived the virus. So it's, you know, we can look at now, we can look at the time now, but I really think it's the next three to five years that we're really going to have to pay really close attention to these gaps that are sure to come. The last thing I'll say again, in thinking about, you know, cities or not even just cities, but also suburbs and and rural areas is the eviction crisis. And so when I mentioned Mm -hmm. before, that you know we are we have been undergoing several crises and it's been ongoing the moratoriums are expiring in some locations and especially in terms of thinking about the federal government and so folks are still being kicked out 
of their homes, despite the fact that they are supposed to be staying at home in order to avoid, you know, contracting a virus that's deadly. So it's a lot. And employment numbers, like people are women, we see the gender dynamics you just mentioned before, just thinking about gender inequalities and thinking about the significance of patriarchy in times of crisis, where you have women dropping out of the workforce in order to stay home with their children at alarming numbers where men aren't doing that kind of corresponding work. So we have several things to look at again over these next few years. Maybe it's going to be a decade by the time we really get a handle of what's going on. Again, disproportionately affecting poor Black and Latinx communities is the hit on small businesses and service sector. That's right. We're seeing this in European countries as well. Unemployment rates are going down, not because people are being employed, but because people have been unemployed so long, they're no longer counting as being part of the labor force. That's right. That's right. So we're, we're talking about generational effects that it would take a strong and mobilized state and population that's willing to be serious about inequality to actually dramatically affect. That's right. And and the thing is, we're seeing this in ways that are based really, again, on the historical inequalities that have existed, but that were pre-existing, right? And then we're also seeing it in terms of the solutions that have been proposed by the federal government recently. So we know, like, you know, I'm sure you saw that report a few months ago about the number, the percentage of Black businesses that were going to close within that first six months of COVID. It was like 45% or something like that, right? And also thinking about how very few Black businesses were actually eligible for the aid, the pandemic aid. And so you're seeing Black businesses hit the hardest because of COVID, in addition, again, to these health indicators or the the health factors that are contributing to folks dying and not being able to actually take care of their families. So you're right, it's going to be generations. We already were having issues in thinking about wealth accumulation, and we knew that we Black wealth was diminishing. It was already low, but diminishing as we move forward in time, that this is only going to exacerbate it and have it work much quicker. COVID hit at a time where we were seeing increasing, particularly by by any means exclusively among young people, Black young people, political mobilization. People obviously worked extraordinarily hard to try to keep at least the conversations going in a time of shelter in place. What form do you see urban mobilization, urban politics taking going forward, given coming out of this, or not coming out of, but through this transformation that these multiple crises have have set upon us? You know, I I think there hasn't been a slowdown in terms of organizing on the street. I mean, we saw the massive mobilizations that were taking place, especially in May and June and continued throughout the summer. And so I think those were indicators that we're not seeing a slowdown. If anything, we're seeing a ramping up. And so I'm glad to see that people are more thoughtful in terms of how to organize and how to be safe doing it. There was this presumption that, you know, these large crowds of people would lead to several outbreaks of the virus, but it didn't happen. People are taking precautions and they're very clear about kind of how to protect themselves and the people around them. What I think is important is that there's this opportunity, or at least they've really taken this opportunity to highlight, you know, or to protest the the health inequities that have been mostly magnified by COVID. Also these racialized police violence 
a truly global concern over anti-Blackness, but then also the shrinking and privatization of of social services that have been due to years of austerity and in various cities. And so people, protesters are literally on the street and organizing, not just on the street, but also kind of in their own spaces with their families, with their friends and acquaintances to demand structural changes, specifically in how the state polices communities, thinking about a redistribution of resources to underfunded, disinvested Black communities in particular. And I think that, you know, as we've seen, this opportunity to have a real conversation about defunding the police has really um, gotten a lot of attention, and, and rightfully so. It's making those who had considered defunding and abolishing the police a ridiculous solution. It's making them realize what it truly takes to demonstrate that Black lives matter. And, and part of that includes this form of defunding that will enable a redistribution and to hold leaders accountable rather than having them kind of pay lip service to what they're saying they want to and, and how to impact Black lives and Black living. And those types of, that type of organizing is going to be even more critical because, as you know, state budgets, city budgets are being massively downside due to revenue streams drying up due to COVID. And I know in Chicago, for example, the mayor is talking about massive cuts. And as these cuts start being put in place, there could be a lot more forces talking about where are the resources and which, which, which institutions such as the police need to be radically, not just radically restrained, but radically drawn down in order that real social services can be supported. Right. And what that means is that, you know, this isn't, these aren't reactive policies, they aren't reactive gestures, but they're actually thinking about the future. So that means we should be very critical of city leaders that want to increase police budgets, right? That when they already take over, you know, massive amounts of the city budgets to begin with. And so just thinking about how it ends up being this vicious cycle where you increase police budgets, you increase the number of officers on the street, people, various forms of poverty, and just literally just being end up being criminalized so that it it, it ends up requiring the need in their in their ideas of having more police officers and then funneling people through the prison industrial complex. And so it's as if it's this kind of monster that keeps feeding itself, right, off of the people in order to grow, rather than recognizing that it's because of the ridiculous budgets that are out of control and excessive that contribute to this downsizing of the community resources that are necessary. Or again, thinking, you know, I'm not always waving the flag for businesses, but if we think about corporatization of some of our most basic services. And I I just go back to thinking about like, do you even remember when, I mean, I'm sure you do, because I do, when there were independent drugstores or when, (laughs) right, when you you could go to a repair shop that was specifically for a camera or for a washing machine or for a a vacuum cleaner, right? When they were vacuum cleaners and not robots that were moving around the floor. But just this way that we have taken to consolidate a lot of these individual activities and, and services that we used to have. And now again, because of these, you know, conglomerates, they're able to squash not only, I wouldn't even say their competition, but it really does change the fabric of people's neighborhoods and the communities that they're living in. One other thing we have to collectively keep an eye on 
that several scholars have written about, but activists have been taking the leading role in trying to fight it, is in places like Ferguson, Missouri, the use of fines, fees, in order to, to produce revenue streams for the state. Mm-hmm. There's going to be neoliberal politicians, when they start looking at these new budget numbers, are going to be seeing about what, where can we charge poor people more money? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is a sacred course, the wrong time to be doing that. We should be going the other direction. But my bet would be that we're going to see state legislators and cities and counties and the federal government all trying to to expropriate even more revenue and resources for poor communities than they have in the past. I agree. Absolutely. And and they were doing it already. Right. So we can exactly. think about that. You know, I talk about it in the book a little bit. Some of those mundane actions like with parking enforcement and ticketing and ways that you know, various cities and states would use tolls, tickets, fines with parking to generate huge sums of revenue for the city. And that was certainly the case in Washington, D.C. Like the numbers were unbelievable. And of course, where the cameras were installed were mostly, you know, poor neighborhoods that were inhabited by Black people. And so we're definitely going to see more of that late fees, right? Like there are so many ways that... uh, through banking, various institutions. If we think again about basic services in terms of water, energy, those types of fees are going to be tacked on to not only support the city, but also these independent companies. And so it's mostly they're taxing the poor rather and those folks who owe very little in the grand scheme of things, rather than thinking about the ways of gaining some kind of additional revenue from larger businesses who in a lot of cases don't pay taxes or get these incredible tax breaks from cities in order to just do business in the city. What are you working on now? Now, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm working on a project on Oakland and it's, you know, it's been a challenge because It's hard to write about your home, especially after you've been gone, but it's really still building on my interest in race as an aesthetic. And so I'm I'm using that work to really think about how resistance signals the possibilities for a future that people in Oakland, specifically in Black Oaklanders, are distinctly shaping. So you know, how local actors are using art and politics and and architectural innovation to really engage in in struggles over space. So so ultimately, I'm trying, I'm, I'm really theorizing Oakland as a Black city, despite the demographics, and really trying to think about how they, people are engaged in a politics of resistance and reclamation. And in a lot of ways, that's going to require me to think and us to think differently about property and ownership and capital, because in a lot of cases, folks don't actually own property here or don't have the capital to take over land. And so what are other ways that people are engaging in various forms of reclamation and again, resistance in the face of capitalist dispossession. So it's a, it's a, (laughs) it's a slow moving project, but there are other elements where I'm including, I have a a collaborative, collaborative work with a Brooklyn based artist, and we're doing some work thinking about the unhoused population and, and also media narratives that seem to extract race from the conversation but how we really need to center Blackness in terms of the crisis of the unhoused, especially in places like the Bay Area, New York, and also Los Angeles. That sounds, I can't wait to see it, but I know <laughs> that you can't wait to finish it either. Yes, so. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you, Michael, for having me. It was fun. I really yes. appreciate it.